Hello and welcome to the Thriving Abroad Together podcast series and episode 7. I'm Louise Wiles, your host for these conversations, an expat change and transition coach and author of Thriving Abroad, the definitive guide to professional and personal relocation success. Now this episode is part of the Thriving Abroad Together series, created to support expats and international people who are facing extraordinary times as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this series, I will be speaking to a range of amazing professionals who have perspectives, insights and advice to share that I hope will support you and your loved ones through this challenging time. I've created show notes that record the key points of all the conversations and you can go and download those from thrivingabroad.com. And while you're there, why not consider signing up for the Thriving Abroad newsletter and never miss another episode. And also, come and join us in the Closed Thriving Abroad Together Facebook group, where we can continue the conversation. So today, I'm really excited to be speaking to Jennifer Petitlieri, who's an Associate Professor at INSEAD and author of a book called Couples That Work. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how expat dual career couples can thrive abroad in love and work. And Jennifer shares what she's learned from her research with hundreds of couples about how couples can thrive through major transitions and make their lives work for them. So on with today's conversation. Okay, so hi Jennifer, lovely to have you joining um, the conversation today in the Thriving World podcast. I'm really excited to share um, with the audience your book, Couples at Work, How to Thrive in love and at work and I found it personally very um what's the word kind of enlightening also a bit scary (laughs) because it's probably the book I wish I had read about 20 years ago um but also very helpfully insightful with some great ideas and thoughts about which I'm going to use personally actually as well as I approach a new transition for myself um but Perhaps before we get into the conversation about the topic and how it relates to international relocation and couples who are thinking about moving abroad or thinking about their next transition abroad, can you just tell us a little bit about the research that you've done and why you decided to research this area for a start and then what that research entailed? Yeah, so it's really a combination of um, my personal experience and also sort of my academic interests. So, you know, I've moved around across countries. Um, I'm someone who's in a working couple myself and trying to manage that work with kids, you know, know how challenging it can be. And as an academic who researched careers and especially leadership transitions, um, I was really fascinated that when we research and talk about people's careers, we talk about them as if we are kind of flying solo with no strings attached. And that is just not the reality for most people. And I certainly felt it in myself, that's not the reality for me. And then the more I thought about this, the more I thought, well, hang on, this isn't the reality for actually more than 70, 75% of professionals out there. Almost all of us these days are a part of a working couple trying to make this work. Mm-hmm. And yet there was just no systematic research to look at what does that look like for working couples, whether they're in one country, they're working around, how do we work through our transitions, what are the challenges we face and what can we do about them? 
So I thought, well, if no one's done that, I'll do that. Um, and so I embarked on really a six-year research project that's looked at couples. I was really looking for maximum variation. So I looked at couples across the life cycle, so couples right at the beginning of their journey, right through to couples who are reaching retirement, couples across the world, so in different nationalities, but also not just different nationalities, but people living abroad, people who transitioned lots, people who not transitioned at all, and across different industries and careers. So not just corporate, also not-for-profit, entrepreneurs, people who work in government and agencies where they get posted abroad a lot. So I'm really looking for that variation to look at what of our challenges looks like it's down to our unique circumstances and what of them is more universal. Great, great. And I think you, you interviewed or you, you worked with a huge number of partners. I think it, how many was it over the Yeah, well over 100. And what well I do is I, I speak to both partners separately first um, so I can really get their unique insights and then often speak to them together as well. Right. Okay. Okay. Great. And and just as just to set this as a so everyone understands from the beginning, when you talk about dual career couples, you talk about them in a specific way rather than couples that work. Can you just explain what how you see dual career couples? Yeah, I mean, a so dual career couple is very straightforward. It's a couple where both partners are committed to their careers and committed to each other. So it's not necessarily people who both want to be CEO, although sometimes it's like that, but it's people for whom their careers are an important piece of their lives mm. alongside their relationship. Okay, okay, great, thank you. So um, one thing I noticed in the book and really interested to hear your findings from this, so thinking about the dual career challenge from the company and organisational perspective, in your book you talked about interviewing 30 few, 32 interviews with organisations yes. to gain insight, insight into how those organisations were thinking about and adapting to this growing dual uh, number of dual career couples in the organizations I'm just interested to hear what you found from those conversations yeah so I have to be honest it was rather depressing so <laughs> most companies are somewhere between either not even talking a good game or starting to talk a good game but not actually doing anything concrete I think on this issue in particular couple companies are very behind the social curve so they've not really grappled with the fact that so many of us are part of dual career couples. Most leadership paths are still designed. Implicitly, the logic behind them is for one with a support crew. So there's an expectation that you can move at the drop of a hat, that it's okay to do last minute work travel, that you know FaceTime is a good thing and you should be in the office all the time. And um, that's increasingly not the reality for men as well as women. So this is not simply a women's issue. This mm. is very much a men's issue, particularly in the younger generation. Because when we say 70% are in working couples, of course, that, that differs across the generations. When we get to the generation under 40, that goes up to more like 85, 90%. And so this yeah. is an issue we're all dealing with. And organizations as a whole really have not got their heads around this. Mm -hmm. do you think it is it not having their heads around the dual career issue but also not really considering work outside life outside work either from a you know work life I perspective think, as well I you know? think it's a little bit of both I think it's a mm -hmm. bit of both but I don't just think it's the work outside of life because what's happened is 
fundamentally our marriage patterns have changed. Mm-hmm. And so whereas 20, 30 years ago, it was rather common for us to marry or partner with somebody who was a, of a different ambition level, a different education level from us, that almost never happens anymore. Mm-hmm. And so what that means for organizations is 30 years ago, if they hired a top talent, the chances are their partner wouldn't be a top talent. And that was quite normal. Nowadays, if you hire a top talent, it's almost certain their partner is top talent as well. And it's a fair chance that their partner is sort of higher talent than they are. And I think that's the piece that companies really have not got a handle on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. And I think particularly in global mobility, where there is still this kind of assumption that whoever's going will follow. Actually, and and increasingly men are following, um, but there's still that following kind of expectation, I think, in the way the whole thing's set up. Yeah. So um, just to set the framework so that people understand sort of the progression of the the book, if you like, um, your research with couples and the analysis saw a number of patterns emerge. And um, the core one around which your book is is structured is is around transitions. Can you just explain to everyone what those transitions are and, and a little bit about each one? Yeah, so I think it's worth backing up and saying when I started the research, I was really looking quite naively for like, there's got to be a solution, right? And if we all do X, we'll all be okay. That's not what I found. What I found is that, you know, life is very challenging for dual career couples, but it's not challenging all the time. And the challenges tend to coalesce around three particular periods and what I call in the book, three transitions that are the times that really make or break our couples. And if couples can navigate them well, two things happen. They set themselves on a good career track where, they be, where they're fulfilled at work, but they are also in a good space in their relationship. And if they don't navigate them well, they either break up, And when we look at the divorce statistics, which aren't actually linear across time, there's peaks and troughs, they really map onto these transitions. Or couples set themselves up on a path, which means they sort of hobble along. So they continue together and they continue in their careers, but it's a real struggle. And so these transition points are really critical points in in a couple's path. And as you said, there's three of them, and I'll overview them very briefly. The first one comes usually within the first five to seven years of our relationship, whenever we get together, whether that's 28, 48, 68, this is going to hit us. And it's essentially, it comes the first time we need to make a difficult decision together, a decision that means we need to move from kind of parallel tracks to combining. So a classic example of this, and many of your listeners will remember this, will be the first time, you know, one of you gets, for example, an international move. What do you do? You cannot continue your careers in parallel. You have to make a decision. Do you take it and the other person follow? Mm -hmm. Do you kind of live apart? You know, this is a fundamental decision. It might be the arrival of a first child. There are other reasons, but essentially it presents the question, how are we going to structure our lives in a way that we can make this work? We can both have careers we like and we can keep our relationship going. And that's the first transition. Now, of course, there's lots of traps and and ways to navigate those, which we can get into in a minute. But that's basically the first transition. The second transition is not linked to our couple stage. It's linked to our career stage. And this comes at mid-career. And it's a time that I'm in now, and it sounds like you've been through fairly recently, which is a time when most of us take a step back and think, you know, is this really the path I want to be on? Is this really 
the direction I want to take for the rest of my career. And essentially, it's a time we ask some fairly fundamental um, existential questions. And they often start small questions about our career. Yeah, I'm not so happy in this job. Maybe I need to make a career transition. And before we know it, we're questioning, was this really the right career path for me? You know, is this, is this where does my passion lie? Is this what I want to do for the rest of our li- my lives? And what we see in mid-career, it's a time when many people make career orientations. Now, for some people, this is selling up and, I don't know, baking cupcakes. It's not always that <laughs> radical. Not that there's anything wrong with cupcakes. It's not always that radical. You know, it may be a simple realignment, but it's a time when we all question. And when two people in a couple are doing that at one time, it's a very stressful time. It can be extremely threatening to a relationship. It's also really hard to manage. How financially, practically do we manage two transitions? It's a very tumultuous time in a couple's lives. And that's a really tricky one to navigate together. And then the third one, which you said you self-confessed, I'm probably heading this way, is one that happens when our social roles are changing. So if we have children, they're probably leaving home. We're past that real fast acceleration phase of our careers. So we're no longer that you know, bright young thing, that, that sort of high potential star. If we're lucky, we're managing them, but not necessarily. <laughs> and it's a time when we start to think about identity. You know, who do I want to be for this last stage of my career? And it's a time when we tend to broaden our horizons beyond relationship, career, and children if we've had them. So, you know, if you're someone like me at my stage, I'm mid-40s, and if I can get through a day and I've thought about my career, my relationship, and my kids, it's been a good day. It's a success, you know? (laughs) And I can collapse into bed and repeat the next day. Now, sometimes I think, oh, I'd love to do volunteering and something in the community, and I'd love to think about, you know, being on the board of not-for-profits. But the reality is that's impossible at my life stage. But in Transition 3, we can sort of broaden up. So it's a time of loss on one hand because our social roles are changing, but also huge opportunity for these broadening horizons. So it's an exciting transition, but also a difficult one to navigate. Yeah, yeah. And I can totally relate to that one because my daughter is, one of my daughters is 17. So she's getting to that point. We're talking about universities. So yeah, yeah, roles are going to begin to change. And um, that sense of, you know, wonder at what she's looking at and and wanting to achieve with her life. And then kind of looking at mine, oh, if I could have my time again. Um, Perhaps I can though. That's the positive thing about thinking about it in this way. Um, So when I listen to you describe those, I can definitely write it in the first transition. I can think of international employees sitting down, having those conversations with partners about, right, is this an opportunity we want to take? Yeah. Hopefully having a thorough conversation. But I think often not. And I think that's part of the challenge often for international employees in that they don't they have the time or the space to really think it through carefully with a partner and aren't kind of directed, don't have any direction or idea about how they should be thinking about it. So that's what kind of excited me so much about, about your book. Um, so, um, and then I see the other, the other transitions, you know, popping up at various points along yeah. international employees' careers and their partners as well, particularly transition to the extent, existential questions. I think partners often face that. They relocate, often perhaps suggests it's thinking, okay, I'll be happy to play a supporting role for a while. But then yeah. one relocation perhaps comes two, and then they start to question, well, what yeah. does this all mean for me? And that's, um, that's another challenge. 
So um, what did you learn when you were, I know some of the people, quite a few of the people you interviewed and you feature in the book have an international element to their lives at some point. Um, so what did you learn about the challenge that they were facing um, and the decisions they were having to make? And what kind of traps did you see them falling yeah. into? Because I think, that's well, really I think awesome. the biggest challenge, and you, you kind of summed it up well, is the international moves often just suddenly happen, right? They land on mm. our plate. You know, we get the knock on the office door. There's this great opportunity. It's in Dubai. Please move next week. You know, <laughs> it's like, whoa. Um, and, and I think that creates a real trap for partners, which is, and, and there's a few of them. I mean, one is we need to make a decision very quickly. And so we can use the wrong decision criteria. Let me give you some mm. examples. We base the decision on money particularly some of the expat destinations or oh, they're tax-free whoa this is going to be great for the family because we're going to earn a lot of money and then think what we can buy with you know and I don't mean materially buy but you know the, the options we can buy with this money mm-hmm. it might be a short-term decision it might, we might be short-term decision criteria you know this looks like a great promotion for me and for you and right now my career is a little bit stagnant so it makes sense the problem with these decision criteria is um I mean, let's take money. First of all, we all need money. Money's a good thing. But most of us, or in fact, none of us work for money alone. We work for, you know, it's like, why do you do your job versus another job? We do our jobs for the community, for developmental opportunities, because we have a passion for a topic, etc. And what happens when we choose our money is it's such a false decision criteria. First of all, because money can very quickly go away. In today's uncertain world, particularly at the moment, you know, jobs are very uncertain. We may move for a job with more money, but then someone may be made redundant. Something may happen. It's very hard to predict our earning potential over time. Very, very hard. And so to cut someone else's career off for money just does not make actual financial sense. Never mind the sense around the meaning, the community, all the other reasons we're doing a career. The other problem is, is when we're deciding very quickly and the choice is in front of us, um, it's about binary choice do we take it or not rather than a more mindful plan choice where we sit down and say okay we're interested in an international career what might that look like what are the boundaries what opportunities are in or out if we get offered the middle east that's in but if it's asia it's out for example and if we don't have those decision criteria in place already it's really hard to make a decision when it's presented in front of us Mm. And so I think when we think about what can couples do who know this might be on the horizon or know they want this, it's really important they have those conversations before an opportunity arises. When the opportunity arises, it, I, mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's too late, but it's very hard to work through all of this stuff, as you said, if you've got two days to get back to your boss. Mm-hmm. You know, you just haven't got time to unpack all these issues. And I think there's a couple of things in particular that international couples need to need to work through. One sounds very obvious. It's location. And I always recommend international couples. It's a very simple game. You know, one evening over dinner, print out a blank map of the world, get some pens and circle the regions that are in or out, and even the cities that are in or out, if you know region. Mm-hmm. That could be really helpful because also in an ideal world, you want to be the one who drives your international career. 
you shouldn't be waiting for your boss to come and give you an opportunity. So if you can proactively say, you know, I'm really interested in international move. I've talked to my partner and these are the regions that would work for me. I'm really keen to go to ABC. You're in control then. And you're not going to get something sprung on you that isn't going to work. And you're going to have to sort of backpedal or feel crikey. If I don't accept this, it's going to be bad for my career. Location is an obvious one. Mm. The others are a little less obvious. I think another one is also about travel time because you may get an assignment overseas, but it may have a very significant amount of travel. And what can often happen for the partner who's followed is it's not the relocation itself that hurts you. It's the fact that when you're there, you're often managing everything on on yourself. So work travel is a really critical thing. How much is too much? And if you're offered a posting with more than whatever percent it is for your couple, the answer needs to be no. And again, that's something you need to negotiate in advance. Mm. And the other thing is what kind of opportunity at a minimum has does there need to be for the other partner who does you know who's not offered the thing is it a okay we're only going to take something when both of us can really continue our careers full pelt what's the minimum bar are we are we happy to go on a wing and a prayer you know hoping you find something when you get there and I think if you've walked through these three areas it's much more easy for you to drive and be in the control seat when it comes to those international moves and also just more mindfully make them now of course life happens you can't guarantee it will be successful but it's much more likely to be successful yes yeah absolutely I agree and and I listen to that and think back on my decisions and some of those issues we considered some we didn't and I think you know certainly from talking to experts financial aspects are often actually declining a bit now in in kind of the prominence because often it's career which is an interesting one because it's often career relating to one of the partners and the other one thinks I'll sort it when I get there but then that sorting often for exactly the reasons you described, you know, having to look after children, other, par- other par- partner traveling extensively with work can't take on a sort of conventional nine to five role abroad. So then it all becomes um, a lot more difficult than imagined. So, um, so I guess what you're describing is a decision-making process that's, that's happening pre-decision or pre-real need, yeah. pressure need yeah. for a decision, which I think is, is a really important one. Um, and so, yeah, as a couple, I'm just imagining a couple sitting down to have this discussion you know, about what they want for the future and whether it involves this international option. Um, so what did your research tell you about how, how couples sort of best approach this kind of conversation? Because I know how some of my conversations have gone around this topic. <laughs> not well. <laughs> um, not well, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and sometimes I think, yeah, it would be nice to go back and replay them, but hey, we're where we are now. And, and, and I've learned so much along the way, so that's, that's valuable. But I do know having read your books there are some great tips about how best to to create the right environment for a positive conversation so can you give some tips yeah so I think the first thing and this sounds really obvious but maybe it's not is to uncouple those conversations from a decision at hand because what happens when we have a decision on the table is we are emotionally invested in it or anti-invested in it Mm. And then, of course, rationality goes out the window, right? 
So one of the things, that's why it's really important that we develop the habit of having these conversations. And it's not just a conversation. It's something that we talk about ongoing. So when a decision comes in, it's much easier to deal with. So mm-hmm. one thing is sort of uncoupling it from the practice. I always say, you need to talk about the, principi- the principles before the practicalities. And mm-hmm. so it's really important. These conversations are about the principles of our relationship. What do we want out of life? What will make this life good for us? And then when a practicality comes in, we can do deal with that much easier mm-hmm. and then in terms of the having the conversation itself I think sometimes people think it's like oh the conversation as if it's this thing I don't know we need <laughs> to go to a desert island for two weeks and discuss I'm not complaining about desert islands by the way <laughs> no all we need is you know at the end of the day if you have kids the kids are in bed if you don't great you know snuggling up on the sofa with a cup of tea or a glass of wine and giving each other 15, 20 minutes of undivided attention. Now, this sounds really straightforward, but just think for a moment, when was the last time you gave your partner 15 minutes of undivided attention? You may not even be able to remember because either kids are around, the TV's on, the phone's in the pocket, you know, something's happening, you get the email. It sounds crazy, but when I talk to couples and really say, okay, when was the last time, many of them literally cannot remember mm-hmm. and 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 so it sounds simple that's all it takes but you need to be planning this you need to say okay now we're leaving the phones in the other room they're not even in the pockets right the tv's off this is just about us and I remember talking to one couple and they were um they were an older couple they were approaching retirement now but I'll never forget they said to me and I always interview couples separately which can be really cute because they come out with like the same story <laughs> and then you know I spoke to her and she said well you know we have this ritual I'm going to tell you you probably won't say it because you know it's just something we do every week but we have on Saturday mornings we have a boulangerie meeting so they go to the local boulangerie and she said we always sit in the same table and we always get coffee and croissant and we have half an hour, and the rule is we don't even take our phones, and we just chat, right? And we chat about the week, what we want. Essentially, they're having a chat about principles. And she said, it's the best half an hour of the week. It's absolutely brilliant. And of course, I talked to him, and he says, well, she probably hasn't mentioned this, but let me tell you, we have this <laughs> half hour every week. And, and what I say to couples is, you know, if we can't afford half an hour, hour a week, undivided attention with our partners then something's wrong Mm -hmm. and that's not about work and it's not about the kids I mean half an hour is is nothing you know it's it's less than five minutes a day and yet half an hour a week will change your entire life I can guarantee it so I think it's about how do we build the ritual into our Mm -hmm. relationship and make it a ritual like the boulangerie meeting like, I don't know, Wednesday night is our, you know, wine on the couch night, or whatever it is. And really having that time to let, give these conversations space to evolve. Mm-hmm. Because when we feel we need to decide, there's such enormous pressure on couples to like, oh, we've got to get all this out and talk it through. And that's when it's so easy to set ourselves up for resentments. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely. And also, I guess, in those pressurized moments, you have very different ways, well, I certainly do with my husband, of making decisions. So he's an accountant, very rational. I'm completely the other spectrum, very emotional. And I think also it's having that 
time to have the conversation about things that matter, which in life, with busy life, often you, you perhaps over time, you forget how to talk about them and things that matter, don't you? You forget. I and, do forget. And I think mm. we think, you know, when we first get together with our partners, we talk about it all the time and it's mm. very romantic. Mm. And then it sort of falls down the wayside. And it's a shame because I think what happens is many couples say, well, I've got these important day-to-day things. Mm. And I say, no. You know, the day-to-day things, they're urgent, but they're not important, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. who is going to pick the child up from daycare? It really doesn't matter. And if that's what you're arguing about, like, it's, I always say, it's never about the milk, right? You may think about who picks up the milk. It's never about the milk. It's always about yeah, something much deeper. Yeah. The, the important things. And I think it's making time for that. And I think the other thing I talk about in the book is, what's the stance we have towards our relationship? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think in our early days of our relationship, we really have this stance of kindness. And I don't just mean being kind to the person you're buying them little gifts and things, like, although that's lovely. I really mean we think kindly of them. So we assume our partner loves us. They've got our best intentions at heart and they're a decent human being who is fallible, mm-hmm. right? Who makes mistakes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and as mm-hmm. relationships go on, we so often let go of that. So, you know, yeah. your partner forgets the milk. And they're a lazy ass, right? <laughs> we never have thought that in the first months of our relationship. Mm, mm, mm. And that stance over time is the really the most important thing that keeps relationships going. If I can keep yeah. in mind, my partner loves me, they respect me, and they're fallible just like I am, things are going to be a lot better. Yeah, and that provides a great basis for the commun- communication and relationship. And I love what you said in the book when you get to the third, third transition as you're working through them. If you have managed the earlier transitions in this way, then that third transition is going to be so much easier. So, you know, it's all a building block, isn't it, over time for the long-term yeah. um, strength of the relationship. So, um, and I'm conscious of time, but in terms of, I know you... you interview people from around the world so did you notice any cultural differences in the way that people were approaching this or was this kind of relationships universal wherever we're looking at them from in the world there are cultural differences but less than you would think so Mm -hmm. what I think about culture is it's a it's a like a cooker that you can turn the heat up or down on Mm. and so the dynamics are very universal but let's take our cultures of child rearing right? In some cultures, it's very normal for grandparents to be heavily involved. Mm -hmm. In some cultures, it's very normal for parenting to be relatively hands-off. Like where I live in France, parents are relatively hands-off. And the idea Mm -hmm. is you're a good parent if your child is incredibly independent. In other cultures, like the US and increasingly in the UK, the the parenting culture is very hands-on and very intense. Now, these Mm. cultural aspects can obviously make it a lot harder for dual queer couples or make Mm. life a little easier. Likewise, the involvement of our family, you know, I sometimes think, you know, what what we all need is a Chinese (laughs) mother-in-law. Yes, they are. They're super mums, you know, they're there, yeah. they're taking care of the children. We use that have to manage some family dynamics. I mean, I'm joking, right? Or maybe we all need a Danish husband who's sort of contributes everything to the house. But I think the culture elements really dial up the pressure or down mm. when it comes to parenting roles and mm. also where, when it comes to gender roles. So we know that one of the big pressures, particularly on women, 
is if they need, if there's an expectation they do a lot of the carry a lot of the load at home and obviously there's cultural variations in that but in terms of the underlying dynamics with our partners it's the same across the world you know we're all you know we're all in a struggle for power we're all in a struggle for who gets most support it's often a question of you know are you really supporting me and that's an expression of love this is the same across the world it's our cultures just make that a little bit easier or a little bit harder being conscious about this I think is really important rather yeah. than just reacting to it which I think sometimes yeah. can be the case yeah yeah, yeah. great so I will um just for everyone listening on the show notes I will put a link to Jennifer's book once again couples that work how to thrive in love and at work um I really really recommend it as a, a brilliant book to support these kind of really crucial decisions um, when, when thinking about relocating and finally as I know that you have relocated yourself um, what additional tip or piece of advice unrelated to this subject perhaps would you prepare, be prepared to share um, in terms of helping people to thrive in their lives abroad yeah I think um, no couple is an island you know we all need social support networks whether that's the mother-in-law or the friends or, or the peers. And I think the faster we can build those support networks, the, the, the faster we're going to thrive. And I think sometimes when we move abroad, we think, oh, God, that's going to be really hard. But often if we're moving to a place where there's a lot of people in our situation, it's actually rather quick because we're all in the same boat. And so I think it's, you know, being mindful that we're all in the same situation and oftentimes people are much more willing to help than you think they are yeah I would second that and in fact having now now as a repat so having been an expat for many years and now back in the UK I have I found you know developing that set that support network so much easier abroad yeah. than I have back home yeah. which is yeah. really quite interesting yeah interesting yeah. thing um and that's for a whole range of other reasons which we won't go into now but anyway um so that has been really, really helpful. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, if people would like to connect with you, how can they do that? So they can connect with me on LinkedIn and they can also um, look at my website where I've got more information about the book, but all the articles I've written and the op-eds. And I think okay. you'll probably post a little link to it on the show notes. Yeah, I will put a link on the show notes and the blog post for this episode. So go and have a look there. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. Remember to go to access the show notes at thrivingabroad.com. Look for this episode, episode seven with Jennifer Petriglieri, and you can download the notes for today's episode. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the regular newsletter. I'll be back soon with the next instalment. But if I can be of any support to you through your expat journey, then please do get in touch with me, either using the contact form on the website or email me directly, louise at louisewiles.com. Wherever this podcast finds you in the world, please stay safe and well. Bye-bye for now. Bye.